It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. My guest today is the Executive Director of the United States Golf Association, Mike Davis. Mike has been part of the USGA family for 30 years and has served as executive director since 2011. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Mark, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Our listeners have seen or read a number of interviews with you over the years, Mike. So I wanted to start off by asking the question that I have not seen you address. So let's start. 1982, the Pennsylvania State Junior golf championship was won by a young man named Mike Davis. What memories do you have of that competition? (laughs) Mark, it's a long, long time ago. Um, Very fond memories. Um, um, I grew up in Pennsylvania and in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, to be specific. And that, that year's junior was at Hershey country club, which um, it was, it was played on both the West course and the East course. So when you play the West course, it, you play right by the chocolate factory. And, and I can remember playing those fourth and fifth holes and you could smell the chocolate. And uh, anyway, so, so not very nice memories. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a few years ago, but um, I, I, I do think about it from time to time. And taking it a step farther, you, you also competed on the division one collegiate level, didn't you? I did. I, I played at Georgia Southern. It was college back then, but uh, it's university now. And uh, yeah, played uh, played amateur golf and played you know the Sunny Hand in the Northeast and you know different different events and uh, and then started you know as you say in 1990 with the USGA when I was 25 years old and it's just been a been a marvelous last three decades. We are admittedly partial here at ASGCA Insights to folks who have an interest in golf course architecture. Uh, But Mike, I think with you, it might be more of a passion for the subject. Uh, Where did that part of your golf interest uh, sort of begin to develop? Well, Mark, you are right. I have always, going back, I can remember when I was a junior golfer, I used to doodle holes um, think about architecture, and even at a young age, I just noticed things. I, I've always had probably more interest in that than just even the high-level elite game following it. You know, I've, with this position at USJ, it certainly afforded me afforded me some wonderful things. You know, meeting the likes of Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus and Byron Nelson, Sneed and you know, Mickey Wright and Annika Sorenstam, Tiger, and, and many others. But honestly, I, you know, what I've been able to do in seeing some of the true, most of the world's great golf courses and meeting so many of the living architects, reading about those that of yesteryear, um, I just, to this day, when I get around golf, it's the, it's the golf course and it's the design of it. And it's, you know, why did the architect do, do a certain thing and, and just marveling at things. So even to this day, I, I will tell you, it's, it's, it's the part of the job I probably love the most is just being around golf courses. And uh, I just, you know, I have huge respect for golf course architects and, and really in, 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 am in awe. And, and if, you know, again, from a standpoint of something that really is meaningful to me, I've, I've met so many of the, 
you know, the living great architects in the game. And, uh, you know, I consider many of them friends and I've learned a lot from them. And have you found as you've built these relationships, both professional and personal over time, uh, that you simply look at courses differently when you first get out there, even, even if just as a fan or as a player, uh, that you view a, a piece of ground differently when you first, when you see it for the first time? I do. I, I, um, and I've tended to do that for years, but as the years have gone by, I even notice things more. I mean, I, I'm, um, you know, my eyes will take me to, you know, where, where was, where was the earth disturbed and, you know, subtleties of putting greens. And, you know, when you're, when you're setting up golf courses, um, I think that, you know, anybody that does that and probably does it well, uh, and I'm not suggesting I do it well, but I do think there's different aspects to it. I think you really have to understand the group of golfers you're setting the golf course up for. I mean, is it the world's best? Or are you setting it up for a, you know, a member guest at a, at a golf course with, with different skill sets? I think it requires some knowledge of agronomics. I mean, what happens to different grasses under different conditions? Uh, certainly understanding what mother nature can do to a golf course. And, and lastly, I, I really do believe that if you're going to set up golf courses, you really do have to try to get in the minds of the, of the golf course designer and say, what was that person trying to do on a given hole? And what's the cadence to the golf course and how you play it? And what different options does, does a hole give you, you know, maybe with hole locations or different teeing grounds or, you know, how you might adjust things on a daily basis. Um, I think that all plays into it. So I think having a good eye for, and, and not just eye, but maybe just a keen interest in golf course design really is helpful. And uh, I know it certainly has been to me over the years. And you have walked uh, literally hundreds of courses, if not more in your time with USGA and, and been a part of just as many national championships on all levels. In, in recent years, there was a, the U.S. Open conducted at Chambers Bay, designed from Robert Trent Jones Jr. and Bruce Charlton, and also at Aaron Hills from Mike Hurdson and Dana Fry and Ron Witten. Uh, what value is afforded to you and your USGA colleagues to work at a course where the original golf course architects are still alive? Well, Mark, it's, it's huge um, because you really can get into their minds. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough at both Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills to see those sites before they were even golf courses. So, you know, to see what Bob Jones, Bruce Charlton, Jay Blasey did in terms of their proposed routing at Chambers Bay and the same thing with, with Aaron Hills, with Mike Hurdson, Dana Fry. Um, and so to be able to kind of see that from the beginning and to see those golf courses evolve and, and, uh, and, and they have evolved. Uh, you know, I think in time they've just they, they've continued to get better. But you know, being around living architects and, and understanding what their thoughts are on, you know, why was a tee placed in a certain area, or what were they trying to do with a certain bunker or the fairway contour, or you know, how did they how did they envision whole playing, or what options you'd have are tremendously helpful. You know, we obviously go to some of the country's greatest golf courses and, and many of them back in that so-called, you know, 
golden age of architecture a hundred or so years ago. Um, and, you know, you see, you know, you see these courses designed by McDonald, by McKenzie, by Tillinghast, by, you know, Harry Colt, and you marvel what they did. And you realize that, you know, typically over the years, there's been some adjustments made or, or just through normal maintenance golf course, golf courses change and trees grow, but, you know, you, you can't really necessarily get into their minds from a hundred years ago. And so you can try to read about it, but to be able to spend time with, you know, living architects really is, you know, it's, it's tremendously helpful. It's educational. And, and I think it's, it's helped us with what we're trying to do um, certainly with our championships. And it, it certainly stands out when you, when you talk about those couple of facilities and, and others as well, that if I'm a baseball fan and a baseball player, I'm probably never going to have the opportunity to play at Wrigley field. Or if I'm a tennis player, I'm probably never going to play center court at Wimbledon. Uh, but if I'm a golfer of any, of any caliber, uh, I can play at Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills and so many other courses like that. That's got to be a wonderful message for you to share w- with your USGA audiences. Yeah, Mark, I-, I believe that's one of the many things that makes the game of golf so wonderful is that, you know, the arena, so to speak, is more meaningful in golf than other sports. I mean, it's not to suggest that, you know, you mentioned Wimbledon. Certainly there's a difference between Wimbledon and Roland Garros and, 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 and Flushing Meadow in terms of how those, how those tennis courts play or, you know, Wrigley versus, uh, you know, another baseball stadium around. Um, but in golf, what's so unique is that every golf course has its own personality, has its own design. And because they're outside, they change, you know, from season to season, from day to day. I mean, you can set a golf course up a certain way and, and have it played differently or mother nature can change it. And, and I think that's what makes our game so special. And it's not just this wonderful game of a lifetime, you know, that has so much integrity to it. it it's, it's getting to see these different golf courses and, and, and interacting with mother nature and, and seeing different types of grasses different weather. And it's all plays into this, just this wonderful thing. And, you know, for me personally, I've, I've gotten a tremendous amount of um, satisfaction seeing and playing different golf courses around the world. And I know so many golfers feel the same way that, you know, you want to see, and you want to play the world's best courses. And, you know, you ask yourself, why is this golf course so good? And it's just so much fun to get into people who like golf course design it's it's just wonderful to get into discussions of you know what's your favorite hole or what's your favorite course or why do you like this particular style of architecture uh how could it be better and so it's it's a fascinating topic and area that you know the other sports really just don't have my guess is USGA Executive Director Mike Davis. The, the 2021 U.S. Open was delayed, uh, but is now right around the corner, being conducted at Wingfoot beginning uh, September 17th. What does Wingfoot mean to the game of golf, and what makes it such, such a strong U.S. Open facility? Well, you're right. I mean, we were delayed from June of 2020 to September, so next month. Um, Listen, Wingfoot, you know, it's got 36 holes designed in the early 1920s by the great A.W. Tillinghast. Um, 
it is particularly the West course, but the East course as well. It is a wonderful, wonderful championship test. Um, you know, it's, geez, you go back to, I think this is our sixth U.S. Open and the first one won by the great Bob Jones in 1959. You had Billy Casper win and then in, you know, the, the so-called massacre at Wingfoot in 1974 with Hale Irwin that won at seven over par. And um, then you had that great, great memory of Fuzzy Zeller and Greg Norman uh, in 1984 that, that Fuzzy ended up winning. And, and then more recently in 2006, Jeff Ogilvy won the U.S. Open and pretty exciting also down the stretch. And listen, this is a place that's had women's opens. It had the inaugural U.S. Senior Open. It, it's had U.S. Amateurs. It had a PGA, great PGA championship that Davis Love won in 1997. So it is just, it, it, it's just has so much history. And when you walk on the place, you realize that, hey, Bob Jones won here and Ben Hogan played here. Sam Snead, Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, and so many in between that it's exciting. And, and in terms of a golf course, um, it, it's one, frankly, Mark, we have to do very, very little. Um, you know, very recently, uh, Gil Hans did some great restoration work um, on the West course, in fact, did the East course as well. And it really brought back some of the wonderful attributes. Uh, you know, I'll give the club just huge kudos you know, they've, they've over the years done a nice job with their tree programs. Their superintendent, Steve Rabadou, is one of the best in the business. So it's ready. And, and I, you know, I think that what's so great about Wingfoot, you know, and, and it really, the architecture shines on that. And, 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 you know, how the game's evolved with how it's innovated itself and what's happened with technology and kind of this current, you know, mindset or, or what we're seeing in the game of just hit it as far as you can and go find it and play. If they try that at Wingfoot, I don't think they're going to be very successful because, you know, what, what Tilly did there was really just, he's got so many subtle little dog legs where you, you can't just bomb it. You, you've got to pick your distance with a certain angle. And if you can maneuver the ball right, left or left, right, Maybe if it gets a little breezy, keep it lower. You really have an advantage. And, and then, you know, the, these green complexes are just superb. Um, they're, they're not overly big, but they've got so many internal features to it. I, I think the greens at Wingfoot are some of the, the best we play a U.S. Open on. You have to have great imagination. And then you've got those you know, those steep based tilling ass bunkers that uh, really are, you know, that they really are hazards. So it should be a marvelous U.S. Open. It seems every time we go there with a championship, it brings out the best in the game. And uh, I, I know our team is really looking forward to uh, next month. And I believe I might have misspoke at the start of that. Then I referenced 2021 is actually the 2020 U.S. Open right. uh, starting on, uh, starting on the 17th. So if I understand correctly, uh, be sure to keep it in the fairway. Be real careful around the greens. Stay out of the bunkers. Not a bad uh, not a bad recipe. That's right. It actually works everywhere you go. But yeah, you really do have to. You know, you got to manage your game. And I think that's one of the things that we try to do and maybe not always as successful as we, we, we want, but ideally at, at a USJ championship, we want it to be more than just executing golf shots. Uh, 
because you know a lot of good players can do that. We we want it to be about course management. We want it to be about handling your nerves. We we want to see recovery shots, but you know so much of that you know really lends itself to the wonderful design of the courses. You know that that's what sets the best courses apart. Is they just they're better designs. Sometimes great courses sit on great pieces of lands. In fact, that oftentimes is the case, whether it's sandy soil or up against an ocean or some, some other dramatic landscape. But sometimes you, you get fairly mediocre pieces of land and you just have great architecture. And you know, I think that most people would agree that the land that Wingfoot sits on is nice, but there's nothing spectacular about it. But the design of those two courses is just all world good. And, and, it's, and I do think that brings the, the most out in a championship. It, it, it forces players to think. It gives players options. There's risk-reward involved. There's times you want to be aggressive and times you want to be conservative. And that all plays into it. And, you know, when you get into the heat of the battle of a championship, you know, your mind doesn't tend to work quite the same. You, you get a little nervous and um, that that plays into it. So, you know, I think this is, you know, assuming Mother Nature's cooperative, I, th- I think we're, we're in for a great U.S. Open. And from the outside looking in, it, it seems to me that across the board with the variety of championships that, that USGA puts on every year, uh, the, the word that keeps coming back to me is revealing, that ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to reveal the best golfer in the field, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. And, and listen, you, you may not always get the number one in the world to win, but you're going to get somebody that played a complete game that given week. Um, you know, they probably will have had to use all the clubs in their bag. They, they will have had to have great course management. You know, there's going to be periods of time in the USJ championship that you get into trouble. And so much of it is how you extract yourself from it you know, how do you keep your mind? Are you able to not get upset and think through it? And listen, if you look back at some of the greatest U.S. Open players of all time, both on the men's and women's side, you think about the Jack Nicklauses, the Tiger Woods, the Mickey Wrights, you know, they had something in common. They not only were great golfers, but they were great thinkers. And they didn't allow themselves to, I I don't think, get to a point where they they were upset because, you know, maybe the course was really hard or, or they got a bad break. You know, they knew they were competing against 155 other players and that everybody was going to, you know, at some points along the way, have some hardship. And I think it is revealing. I think that's one of the things that, you know, majors do that. Um, and, and listen, I, I, we're blessed to go to so many of this country's great golf courses. And I, I, for one, have always felt that the better the golf course, uh, the, the more interesting test of golf it is. And, and listen, we, we over the years, we've, um, you know, we've, I, I would say if you go back to 1895 of the first U.S. Open, one consistent thing about the U.S. Open is, and, and this would be true with the women's U.S. Open or the men's and women's U.S. Amateurs, is that it is a challenging test of golf on great courses. And, and I would say in the last, you know, 15 or so years, we probably have been, at least we've attempted to be more mindful of really getting into the head of the architect saying, what was, you know, what was he or she trying to do on a given hole or on a course? And, 
and, and what options we give. And so it, it's interesting, if you go back to the early 1950s, th there became kind of a recipe on how you set up a U.S. Open. And that was, there was a great president at the time named Richard Tufts. And he worked very closely with Joe Dye, who was the executive director of the USJ for well over 30 years, two great people and, and really legends in the game. But they came up with this, this recipe that almost regardless of where you go with the US Open, you're going to have narrow fairways, you're going to have high rough, and you're going to have fast greens. And, and that was kind of the recipe. And, you know, we noticed that, you know, as time went on, that sometimes you would really compromise the architecture of a golf course when you started narrowing holes too much. And, and all of a sudden you could take a drive zone bunker that's the fairways right up against. And then all of a sudden now you've got rough in between the fairway and, and that bunker. So you know, we started trying to appreciate the architecture more. And I mean, I, I will say with so many members of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, getting their help and helping us think through how best to maybe play a certain hole and, and what options it affords. And, and so, you know, even if you go to, you know, a golf course like Wingfoot where tilling ass has long been gone, you know, it is helpful when you're there, if you're working with, you know, I know back in 06, uh, Tom Fazio and Tom Marzoff was involved and they were very helpful to us. And this go around Gil Hans and Jim Wagner had been involved and it's hugely helpful to have the, you know, have them, help us think through and you know even when we say listen given what's happened with distance um we need another team ground in this because we just you know the drive zone's not in play anymore for if we want driver to be hit or, or whatever the case might be and and you know having having a qualified architect help us through it has really proven to be tremendously helpful over the years so my my guess is that the question that you hear most often from folks sounds something like, what about the golf ball? So as a means of raising the topic of equipment, Mike, let me ask you, what about the golf ball? Well, listen, let me start out by Mark. It, it's a, it's a complicated topic. And I will also say it's a topic and I'm not exaggerating that has been talked about for well over a hundred years. And I mean, I, we have, we found some minutes in USGA equipment meetings going back over a hundred years that if you read the minutes, you swear you would, you'd be in 2020 because the same things were happening then and there. But listen, as I say, you know, we started with the RNA about two years ago, something called the Distance Insights Initiative. And, and listen, it's all about the future of the game. And the first part of this was to, you know, spend significant time and monies really researching all parts of this, this distance debate. I mean, what caused distance to increase over the years? And, and listen, I, I, I'm sure, you know, people listening have their views that it was, it's the golf ball, it's the golf clubs. It's, listen, what we found is, and the research really was crystal clear, is that it's, it's a combination of things. And, and what, we, what we did find out, and again, the research really was, was remarkably clear, is that there's over a hundred year cycle of increasing hitting distance and golf course lengthening. 
And this has had a profound impact on golf courses. It's caused them to spend more money to change. It's caused them increased operating expenses. It's caused you know, golf courses to use more water. And this, this cycle of every generation hitting the ball further than the last generation and consequently having golf courses feel like they have to lengthen. And, and this isn't even with the, you know, with the tours. This is just, you know, golf courses. And it was amazing because, again, it's not just golf courses hosting professional events. It's virtually all golf courses that have felt that pressure to expand. And, you know, and I think that while it sounds simple, you know, it, it's amazing how many people really haven't thought about the issue of distance and, and it's all relative. And, and so I think from where we sit, we, we have been concerned because we think golf courses have had to unnecessarily change. And I suspect that many of your listeners would say, well, I like hitting the golf course. Ball, golf ball further and we all like that but again everything is relative that if you and I play Mark and you consistently hit the ball further than me that would have been the case back when we were playing with gutta perches and 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 hickory clubs and and versus what we're playing with now and I, I suppose that you know our view is that golf isn't necessarily better every time the golf course has to lengthen because it does affect all golfers. We're all having to pay for this to happen. And, you know, for some of these wonderful old architectural gems, while they still may work for the vast majority of golfers, why would we want to, why would we want to obsolete these golf courses for some golf course? And by the way, for those on, you know, that think that it's just the, the touring professionals, or just the elite amateurs. Listen, there's a lot of people at the club level who hit the ball long, and there's this pressure put on golf courses, whether it's the owner operators or the, you know, a, a green committee, but they just feel like they need to change. And it's cost the game billions, billions of dollars. And I think for us, we just want to see the future make sure that we've got a healthy, enjoyable, sustainable game for all golfers for many generations. So you know, we're going about this in a very process-oriented way. I, I can tell you as of, um, you know, 2020, I mean, as of this, we don't know what's going to happen, but we, we do know that we have a concern and, and we just see some unhealthy things that have happened and that are happening and that absolutely will continue to happen if something doesn't happen if something isn't done about this continued increase in distance. And there's nothing wrong with, uh, with pulling out the persimmon clubs once in a while, is there? That's right. <laughs> yeah, good memory. You, you really find out how good you are when you, when you go back and you, you try to find a sweet spot on one of those. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of final questions here with Mike Davis from USGA. Uh, Mike, a topic of great partnership in recent years between all aspects of the golf industry has been the area of additional tees and forward tees, which you touched on a few minutes ago, uh, from architects to superintendents to the USGA and teaching pros. Uh, the benefits afforded to players from playing the proper tee for them is being recognized across the board. The USGA has really been a leader in sharing this message, haven't they? Yeah, Mark, I think that's right. And listen, um, you know, the architects have been at the forefront too. And, you know, what we found, I mean, you know, you, you remember that really the awareness campaign we had a few years ago with T at Ford, 
it was just to get the people to play maybe the way the architect intended. So maybe you'd have a chance to get to a green and regulation. Um, and, you know, I know through distance insights, one of the things we found out is that there's not only an issue with the game for some golfers hitting it too far, which are in fact affecting golf courses, but we clearly found evidence and, and, and a need that to take the other side of that where you've got beginning golfers, you've got senior golfers, you've got female golfers who in some cases just don't have team grounds far enough forward. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I know Jan Beljan, who's, who was president of, of the association, she and I have certainly talked on a number of occasions and, you know, she's made the point that, and she's absolutely right, that you take females and for many females, they have one set of team grounds. And versus males, you know, oftentimes as a junior, you start off forward and then you work as, as you as you continue to hit the ball longer and your game gets better, you move closer to the back tees. And then as you kind of age out and you start, you become a senior, you start to move up. So, you know, over the years, you know, and I, I hate to generalize like this and particularly as a gender, but we're not giving, you know, many of the beginners and females and, 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 and seniors enough opportunity where, um, you know, through the research we've done, if your golf course doesn't have a Ford set of team grounds somewhere in that 4,000 to 4,300 yards, you're, you're missing it for some segment of the golfers. And I, and I, I know, you know, the, the, the Society of American Society of Golf Course Architects have been doing a great job in that respect of, of moving things forward and giving, you know, more options. And, you know, I guess along those lines and related to this is that, you know, if you go back in time, 18 holes was not always the norm. I mean, if you go back 125 plus years, you know, the way golf courses were kind of built is they, they just build it for whatever the land kind of gave in that period. So you might have 22 holes or you might have 14 holes. And we became much more uh, regimented where, okay, you have to play 18 holes. And thankfully, I think you're seeing the game start to uh, say, well, listen, we don't want to see 18 holes go away, but we like the idea of giving an option to play nine holes or to play a short course, um, you know, at Piners, there's this wonderful, you know, experience called the Cradle that Gil Hans designed. It's a nine-hole course that sits on 10 acres of land. And when you look at the number of golfers that that, you know, 10 acres can hold at a given time and how much fun it is, it really does, you know, it makes you wonder there should be more flexibility in the game where, if you only have an hour to play, you can play in an hour. If, if, if you want to go out with just a, with a couple clubs, you can go out with a couple clubs. And, and um, so it's, it's nice. And, and I really do think you're starting to see the golf embrace those different ways of, of playing this great game we all love. Well, and we've made this point with, with some of our guests here on the podcast in the past, uh, that there are different words in the dictionary for game and sport. And we started this conversation, Mike, talking a lot about the sport of golf, uh, but you're really talking here about the, about the game and the pleasures of the game. It's exactly right. I mean, think about what, what other sport is, I mean, there, there are very few sports that are, are in games that are of the lifetime. You can play it from when you're very small, you're old. 
what other sports or games where you can have players of differing abilities play on an equitable basis through the handicap system? And, you know, we talked about, you know, just the aspect of the golf course and how different each golf course is and how even each golf course can be different from day to day or week to week. And it, it all, it, it's what makes our game so wonderful. And then you think about the other attributes of just, you know, the integrity of the game and you call penalties on yourself. And it's just, you know, when you think about the game as a whole, um, it really is, uh, you know, I, th I think we're all fortunate to be involved in it. Well, and as soon as, uh, the, as soon as I can sit down again with the executive director of the USGA and, and, and figure out something we can put in place that allows me to begin to out hit my 14 year old son again off the tee, uh, I'll be much happier. <laughs> like what, what, one final question for you, uh, just to give you a form here. If there's one thing you wish the general public knew about USGA that they might not be familiar with or might not think about, what would it be? Oh, I suppose, Mark, that, you know, we are a nonprofit. And, I, you know, I think people realize, okay, those are the – that's the group running the U.S. Open, the U.S. Women's Open. Um, they're the ones that write the rules and, you know um, – you know, regulate equipment, but at the very core of what we do, we are about bettering the game of golf. That's our mission. And, you know, I, I would say this, that um, we are, you know, thankfully, you know, mostly through the U.S. Open, we are, are we have good income and, and we use that income to put back into the game of golf. And Listen, there's a lot of organizations around the world, certainly in this country, that do a lot of great things for the game of golf and that inspire the game. But, you know, I, you know, to, to answer your question on what I'd like to, you know, people to know is I don't think most people realize that, you know, we're putting a couple hundred million dollars back into the game every single year. There's no organization that puts it back into the game of golf anywhere like the USGA and, and, you know, again, maybe we don't get everything perfect, but, you know, the turf grasses you use and the environmental efforts and the junior golf programs. And, you know, it's it's not inexpensive to, to, to handle governance functions. And so, you know, I think that for us, um, it, it is really all about bettering the game of golf, making that experience that we all um you know, making the experience in golf as good as it can be and, you know, helping golf courses with best practices, being good to the environment. And uh, so I, I think that's what, uh, again, we, we, we so often we're just thought of as the people running the U.S. Open and writing the rules, but we do so much more than that. My guest has been the USGA Executive Director, Mike Davis. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, Mark, it's been a pleasure. You take care. That concludes this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of this podcast and more information about golf course architecture at ASGCA.org or download the Insights podcast from Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Thank you for listening. And until next time, so long.